morning, the meek, the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the pure in heart, the merciful, the peacemakers. And even further than that, he goes and says that when people say terrible things about you, and the reason that they are saying terrible things about you is because of me, Jesus says that that also is the place of blessedness. So he's encouraging us to begin to recognize that blessedness and God's pronouncement of good is actually in experiences and situations that we would otherwise not think are places that you would experience good or blessedness. And we saw also in that text the importance of salt and light, how Jesus' disciples, he was saying to them, you are salt, you are light, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. In other words, there is this Christian distinctive that you carry that the world needs. It's about the character of Jesus. It's about walking in the way of Jesus. It's about being who Jesus makes us to be. And we recognize then that the world is a better place when the people of God live as salt and as light in the world. But if the people of God don't live as salt and light in the world, then we really can't blame the world for being a terrible place, can we? Because you think of some of the characteristics of salt that we spoke about, salt seasons and it preserves and it creates a thirst and light illuminates. If you take the illumination and the preservation and the creation of thirst for God and the, and the seasoning and the flavor that salt and light brings out of the world, the world is better or worse because of that. It's worse because of that. So Jesus says, these are, these are the characteristics of my people and blessedness is an important thing. And the scripture then continues in Matthew 5, verse 17, and I wanted to tag this onto the text that we're coming to, which is where we're beginning again today, because I think it runs right into it. 5.17 says this, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is our new text for today. So that's where we got up to last time. So that's just a recap. The text today begins here. And so think about this again. Jesus, Jesus, to you and everybody at the time, if you were his disciples, maybe you hadn't had yet the revelation that this is the Son of God. It's later, walking with Jesus, that Jesus says to Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Son of God. You, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Up to this point, who is thee? Who is thee? He's somebody who maybe if you were one of the fishermen who Jesus had called, you'd been fishing all night and he told you to let your nets down again and you'd caught a lot of fish and you were surprised at what's going on and you began to follow him and walk with him. Maybe he's someone who said, you, you go and call your brother and you both follow me. And so you're walking with him and you're following him. But all appearances, he's a man, right? And this man begins to talk about the law in a way that is actually astonishing. And it's very easy for us, people who didn't grow up as, as Pharisees or Sadducees or, or scholars of the law or, or the Hebrew of Hebrews, to see how Jesus is talking about the law in the way that was bound to have offended. Because he says here in verse 21, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old. What's he talking about? He's talking about the law. It was said to those of old, you shall not murder. 
And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. And here he goes. But I say, if you're a Hebrew, does that offend your ears a little bit? You've practiced the law. You've followed the law. You've memorized the law. You've, you're living the law to the nth degree. Jesus says, you've heard that the law was this, but I'm telling you something new again. I'm telling you something brand new today. I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a call shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Anybody said that to anybody recently? All right, we'll talk about what that word means in a little bit. Whoever says you fool, anyone heard that said recently, should be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. That's our text for today. And I just want to make four brief observations based on the text. And the first one is this. The purpose of the law was not to establish self-righteousness. Think about that for a minute. The law wasn't given to us so that there was this standard that we set before us and we live to it. And when we live to it, we check off a box and say that we are now righteous. That is not the purpose of the law. Jesus in Luke 18, 9 says this. He speaks a parable and he's telling this to some who trust in themselves that they are righteous and they despise others. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee prayed and stood thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not like the extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, or even there's this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So it's easy to say I'm not a murderer, right? If I ask for a show of hands, and I won't because I just don't want to know. <laughs> but if I were to ask for a show of hands, I would expect an almost 100% show of hands that I am not a murderer. And so what do you do with that? Do you set a line out and you say, I'm not a murderer? Therefore, I'm somebody because I'm not a murderer. And thank God that I'm not like those who murder. Thank God that I'm not like those places where there's a lot of murder going on and a lot of killing going on. See, it's easy to say murder is wrong. I'm not a murderer. But it's not so easy to say that I don't get angry, is it? And so Jesus says, Matthew 5, 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, and think about this, this is Jesus' way, his new way that he's introducing us all to. I say to you, there's a new way. It's not about the old way of saying murder is the standard. There's a new standard because this standard isn't just about what you actually do with your hands or with the gun or with the sword. It's about something that dwells inside you. And the way of the Spirit isn't just this external thing. The way of the Spirit is looking and searching the thoughts and the intents of the heart and seeing deep into us in a way that the person sitting next to you doesn't see. 
And Jesus is introducing this way of the Spirit and says that if we get angry with our brother without a cause, it's a problem. And, and the problem I think we have is that I think we live in a day and age where anger is good, right? Anger, I would say, is the, is the spirit of the age. You may agree with that. You may disagree with that. Let me talk to you about that for a little. How many of you remember the movie Wall Street, the original Wall Street with, with Michael Douglas playing Gordon Gecko? When did that come out? In the 80s? The 90s? Whenever it was. I think that the spirit of that age was that greed is good. It was a time when everyone wanted to work in finance because, and I remember, I worked in the music business in the UK, and when I tried to get into the music business, people told me that you couldn't anymore because everyone wanted to do it, and the prior age was the age when everyone wanted to be a banker or a financer, and they used to drink champagne out of pint glasses, and they used to make billions of dollars and drive really fast cars, and everybody wanted to do that. It was in the middle of that that this movie, Wall Street, comes out, and I used to wear the thick what do you call those things that hold your pants up? Suspenders, we used to call them braces and stuff and, and wear the, the chalk striped suit and act like I was working in finance. I used to read the Financial Times on the, on the, on the London Underground. Idiot, I was. Um, and be, be, because it seemed good to be associating with, with that kind of winning mentality, but at the root of that winning mentality was greed. And Gordon Gecko says, I'm gonna quote, he says, greed, he makes this speech. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works, greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar Paper, which was the company they were trying to keep, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the United States of America. And so he says that greed is a good thing to have. And I would say to you that I don't know that that's the same anymore, but I think anger is the spirit of our age. I think it's okay to be anger. angry, people will tell you. I think you can build news networks based on anger. Who are you angry with? Everyone who doesn't agree with us. You can build political denominations based on anger. Who are we angry with? Everyone who doesn't agree with us. You can build sides in the COVID wars Based on what? Anger. Who am I angry with? Everyone who doesn't agree with us. And I was looking and I saw that, so if we said, you know, anger is good, anger works, anger clarifies, anger cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit, if we put those words into that. And I had to go and look for some quotes on anger on the internet and I found this. Someone will say anger is designed to promote survival. Anger provides a sense of control. Anger energizes us. Anger motivates us to solve problems. Anger makes us aware of injustice. You think about it sometimes. The only reason we're going against a cause is because we're angry about something. We're using the anger to justify the way we act in respect of that cause. Anger drives us towards our goals. Anger injects optimism. Anger protects our values and beliefs. So if my values and my beliefs are under threat, it's okay to be angry about it. And to be angry at everybody who stands against what I say is right. What is my value? What is my belief? Anger is a bargaining tool. Because if I want something from you and I'm mired and angry, you know that in order to get it, you've got to give me something and then I give up my anger and I get it. How many of us do that? Anger increases cooperation. So we get what we want in our houses because we act like angry, mad people. Our kids know that if they get angry and they throw tantrums and strops and they behave badly, particularly in the grocery store, that will give them what they want. Angry 
covers, this one hurts, painful feelings. I'm angry, but I won't look at the reason for the anger because it's covering something. And anger, in contrary, anger also justifies all kinds of behavior. If I'm mad at you, it's easy to treat you badly. It's easy to sin against you. And I found not so many quotes on the internet that said the opposite. This, that anger is a punishment we give to ourselves for someone else's mistake. And another one, holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. The purpose of the law isn't to create self-righteousness in us. The purpose of the law is, secondly, my second point, is to lead us to Jesus. So the law wasn't just to set this standard that once we achieve it, we've got it, everyone else is terrible, and I'm good, and I'm self-righteous, and everyone else is terrible, and I'm good, and I'm self-righteous, and everyone else is terrible. No, because then you'll never find Jesus. The law searches deeper than that. And so when Jesus says, you've heard it said of old, and you think you are meeting the standard, here's another standard. Here's another standard that everyone falls foul of. Everyone falls foul of. The purpose of the law is to lead us to Jesus. Galatians 3, 23 to 24 says, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. So the law was this kind of guard, kept for faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified for faith. So the purpose of the law was never to show us that we made it. It was to perpetually show us that we can never make it. So there can never be self-righteousness. There's never a standard that we ever attain by the law. The law instead is meant to keep showing us and keep showing us that we fall short and we fall shorter than we think we're falling. Whatever the standard is, we're falling short of it. And so it's not, I hold this, I'm not a murderer, standard out for others and then ignore my own anger. But instead, the way of the Spirit begins to search the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. How then does the law work? The law law works by exposing sin. So that means we've got to pay attention to the sin that the law exposes because Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. The law still exists. And the law still does a work in us all and reveals things in us. And the question is, what will we do with the things that it reveals? Romans 7, 7 says this, I wouldn't have known sin except through the law. So before the law, we had no idea what sin was. The law comes, we understand what sin is. I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desires. Look at that. Do not touch the cup of the bottle of water. No, by no means. Absolutely don't touch the bottle of water. No one should get out of their seat and touch the bottle of water. Anyone want to touch the water? All right. And the thing is, that's just a crazy, silly little example, but sin takes advantage of the law and produces in me all manner of evil desires. It's a little diagram I just want to show you how I think this works. You think of a seesaw in a a park or a scale, whatever you want to do. you You push down on one side, the other side goes up. Sin takes advantage of the pivot, the fulcrum, which is the law, and produces in me all manner of evil desires. The more law you have, the more evil desire you have. Sin takes advantage of the law and produces in me all manner of evil desires. So the way sin is working is it's using the law to kill us. 
is what the scripture says. And so the law is our tutor, as our guard is leading us to the point that we cry out, a wretched man who that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, Jesus. The law is to lead us to Jesus. The law is to get us to Jesus. And so you see under that diagram, the law says don't covet. Sin takes advantage of that and makes us want to covet. And interestingly, this is how they'll murder law. Don't murder. You see what it does is we struggle and struggle and don't murder, but there's some other things that come out that are telling us that there's murder in our hearts. So we have to, my third point, pay attention to all the signs. When it says that someone calls, says of someone else, Raka, the best equivalence of that I can find is worthless. Worthless. It's like saying to someone, you worthless idiot, you fool. It's the next phrase. And I don't want to get into the weeds about the actual definitions of this word, these words. I just want to say this to you. That when out of our mouths about other people come words like worthless and fool and idiot and stupid and worse than that, what's it telling us? It's telling us that there's something going on inside that needs dealing with. See, the law is still working. And sin is still taking advantage of the law and producing in me all kinds of evil desires. Luke 6, 44 to 45 says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when out of my mouth come things like fool and worthless and idiot, it's telling me that my heart is problematic. The angry words demonstrate what is within and so if we don't pay attention to the fact that out of our mouths and in our actions, things are coming out that demonstrate what's hidden inside, then we may never deal with the upset that's inside. We get mad with our husbands or wives or kids and we start calling them foul things. What we really need to do is recognize that we're saying things because there's something in there that we've got to go and deal with. And then whether it's upset or disappointment, because if I said who's ever been upset or disappointed or hurt or irritated or annoyed or offended or resents someone or is disgusted, that stuff is what dwells in us and festers in us and we hold on to it and then the signs of that stuff in there are the things that come out of our mouths. And so we kill, not with our hands, but with our words. We assassinate people's characters and the work that they do and their livelihood and their hopes and their dreams and their ambitions, not with our knives or our guns or our bombs or anything else, but with our words. So when we examine our lives and we find that we've been speaking negatively about people, and sometimes that's just, we just gossip about them, oh, he's this or she's this, or have you seen this about, have you seen that idiot fool? He, this, she, this, unchecked words. Jesus is saying, those words show you that in your heart is murderous intent. And that hurts, right? Which is the work of the law. But the law isn't to lead us to the point that says, I'm not a murderer, I'm good. It's to lead us to the place of the way of the spirit that Jesus is leading us in, which is better, is that he says that ultimately, let me, let me shine my light into your heart and show you how you really are. And when I show you how you really are, don't just dwell in that place, come, come to me. That word in the middle of worship is ultimately, at the end of the day, Jesus has everything we need 
There's an abundance of everything we need and forgiveness is there for those of us who need to be forgiven. And, and the scripture says this in Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, be angry and do not sin. Now that's interesting. It seems as if there's this, there's this kind of anger and some people have called it righteous anger that's actually okay. But you realize that right close to that kind of anger is this thing called sin. And sin's right next to it. And it's telling us that when we get angry and we harbor anger in our hearts and we hang on to it and it goes on and it goes on and it festers and it festers and it festers, sin is right there and the transition from anger to sin is, is, is a moment. And we don't even know when that moment's coming. So it's saying, watch out. Be angry, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath, nor give place to the devil. What does it mean to not let the sun go down on your wrath? I think there comes a point in every gestation of anger that the anger sets into something and becomes intent to do something that isn't good. Now, that might actually be related to the sun going down. It might be three minutes. It might be 10 minutes. It might be half an afternoon. It might be a week. But Jesus is saying, watch out. When anger rises up, that the potential for sin is right there. And so be careful. Don't hang on to that anger. Don't let the sun set on it because who's waiting to take advantage of that anger? What's it say? The devil. If you don't believe me, let's go to Genesis. Genesis chapter three, chapter four, verses three to eight. First son, Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brings of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And the next words are, can we read these together? And Cain was very angry. One more time. And Cain was very angry. What's about to happen? His countenance fell. So the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, who's at the door? Is that weird? Is that the same thing we just read in the New Testament in Ephesians? Don't let the sun go down on the anger because, because in your anger, don't sin. Careful because there's something about to happen if we're not careful how we deal with the anger. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at your door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And we know what happens next. What happens next? Okay, okay. Unchecked anger led to that. And I don't know whether we're people that if there were no law and if no one would find out, whether we would kill half the people that we were actually mad at in the Wild West kind of way of living. <laughs> we'd all have guns on both hips and we'd walk into the bar and someone would sling a whatever it is, down the bar and we'd catch it and gunfights and all that kind of thing. <laughs> Deal with your enemies that way. You wouldn't need to call people fools because you just have a duel and a shootout, right? Um, but it's all changed. And thank God we don't live like that. Um, but I, I really think that ultimately Jesus' way of the Spirit is a new way for us all. And it's saying pay more attention to what's inside. Pay more attention to what bubbles out from you. Pay more attention to the feelings of resentment and hurt and disappointment that you have. And be careful with them. Because if you begin to see the mirror in the ways you, you speak about people, if you're consistently speaking negatively about the same people 
then there might be something going on in you that you have to deal with. And if you don't deal with it, it's like holding a burning coal and helping the other person gets burnt by it. Because the anger that we hold on to makes us worse. Not only is it character assassination and we kill the other person with our words, but it burns us as well, right? And so my last point is this, and, and the band, please, you can, you can make your way back up. Uh, the Spirit always leads us to life. Um, 2 Corinthians 3, 6 says this, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. How does the letter kill? I think when we choose law, when we prioritize law, when we see law as the end and ignore the leading of the Holy Spirit, it kills us. It kills everything around us. And instead, the Scripture says, be led by the Spirit instead. So you realize, how do you fulfill a law? You fulfill the law by being obedient to the promptings and the leadings of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus doesn't leave his, his, his listeners in this place where he's not telling them how, how this works out because he says that, so you think that murder's the standard, murder's not the standard. Actually, the new standard is anger. And when you're angry, it sounds like you start calling people fools and idiots and it's showing you that there's stuff going on in your heart. When you find that stuff going on in your heart and you hear horrible things coming out your mouth about people, here's what you need to do. You need to go be reconciled to that person. There's people in our Congress that need to quit their speeches and go walk across the other side of the house and go say sorry. There's whole news networks that have got to go apologize to the people that they build their network on trashing these people. And these people build their network on trashing these people. There's people on this side of every argument who've got to go say sorry to these people on that side of the argument because all that happens is there's just this festering of anger building up. And anger is really saying that if the gloves are off, if you're allowed to do it, you just kill your enemies. You just kill your enemies. And Jesus is saying that's exactly what it is. And Satan wants to do that. He wants to do that. His sin is crouching at the door and Satan wants the foothold and he wants to assassinate people for real. Not just with words. So the text then says this, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go your way and first be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Let me stop there. When someone asked Jesus what the summary of the whole law was, Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. It's kind of a vertical approach, right? I've got to get this relationship right. And so bringing your gift to the altar is about getting the vertical relationship right. I'm doing something unto God. But in that moment, Jesus says, if you think this relationship is the thing that matters most, hold on a sec, what about the horizontal relationship? Because you're prioritizing worshiping me and praising me and bringing your gift to me, but hold on a sec, not only was it love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but love your neighbor as yourself. And so there's a horizontal and a vertical. The two things are inseparable. They're integrated. They, they're married to one another. The two, you cannot come and, oh God, and come and, come and, come and get down on your knees and, and you praise him and you worship him, but you hate your brother. He says, get up. Find your brother or your sister or your spouse you're still mad at for the last four weeks and you haven't forgiven. Go be reconciled and then come back to that place. And he's telling us that that place is less important than the reconciliation. Imagine that. That the offering can wait. 
We think offerings are important and the offering to God and the praise to God is important. But Jesus says, that can wait. Reconcile to your brother first. So he's telling us that the priorities that we have are sometimes wrong. Imagine being at the altar at your wedding and saying, hold on a second. Can't go through with this yet. I've got to go say sorry to someone. Imagine being at your graduation ceremony and there's the big long line and you come up and you've got your wig and your gown and they're about to put it on you like, no, 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 no. Pass someone else. I've got to go to the back of the line. Even though my name begins with B and I've got to go join the, <laughs> the Ys or the Xs, I've got to go fix something and do this first. Imagine being at the final minute of the Super Bowl. You're about to throw a touchdown pass and you're like, oh God. Imagine seeing a guy do that, put the ball down and walk off the field and go and say sorry to his father or his mother, right? But Jesus is saying it's that important. Whatever you think is the pinnacle of existence, the most godly good thing you can do, the most serious occasion that you can have, Jesus says, forget that first.